Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. We have half an hour of the best science stories for you on your radio. Strap in because we are ready to go. My name is Claire and Chris, what do you have for us this week? Well, this week uh, I'll be talking to, well, we will all be talking to Jess Snare, who yes. is a science communicator and medical researcher who has just got back from a working on a project in the central Arava Desert in Israel, trying to find out if, uh, trying to find the medicinal properties of desert plants. So these are plants that have been used by, in traditional medicine, um, particularly by the Bedouin people in that region um, for, for a long time. And now there is a project to try and find what are the actual active ingredients and can they be used in a modern medicine sense. Well, stay tuned for that. How about you, Stu? Well, I'm uh, being way more cool than going out in the desert. I'm talking... Are you uh, fully chilled today? I'm, I'm, f- I'm fully chilled today. <laughs> uh, I'm talking about the chill factor. And it's not how cool you are. It's not... Yeah, it's not about, you know, how you dress or how relaxed you are about everything. It's actually about how do plants know when to wake up in the springtime. This is something I've thought about a lot. Yeah, it's it's just one of those things because people sort of, you know, plants lose their leaves. A lot of plants lose their leaves in as, as they go into winter. And then in springtime, they start growing leaves back and they start flowering. But how do they in. know? How do they know? Well, they, they measure how cold it gets, basically. I always That's, thought it was a sun thing. Some plants do it that way, but uh, a lot of deciduous plants um, have a chill factor. Have a chill factor, and they whatever their specific chill factor is, they know deep down when to start growing again. Well, stay tuned to learn more about chill factors with the chillest science radio presenters around <laughs> on Lost in Science. You are listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and we have in the studio with us today Jess Snear. Jess is a science communicator and medical researcher who's recently returned from working on a study looking at the medicinal properties of desert plants in Israel, and she's come into the studio to tell us all about it. Jess, welcome to Lost in Science. Howdy, everybody. Now, before we get started on this exciting thing with uh, the, the medical properties of the desert, can you tell us a little bit about bit about your own background. Where did, where did you come from? All right. Well, I've come from Melbourne. And what have I done? I've kind of been all over the place. So started off with a biomedicine degree. And then naturally, I progressed to the VCA, where I did a visual art degree, which is um, my parents were absolutely ecstatic being from a you know Jewish background. That's exactly what they wanted in the family is another artist. And after that, uh, trying to get a job in the art field, um, I obviously went back to the science world. So I went to um, the Alfred and I worked as a clinical researcher. Then I um, went to uh, Peter Mac 
and I did um, a bit of cancer research. And, um, yeah, I've been doing kind of little things here and there. I ran an art space for a little bit. and um, <laughs> That's quite a round trip. Um, how on this trip did you wind up in the, the middle of the desert? All right. So I decided when I was working at Peter Mac, my colleague came up to me and said, hey, would you like to go to Israel? So I had been to Israel. My family's from Israel, my dad's side. And I kind of thought, oh, I haven't really been there for eight years. Um, maybe I should head back there. But I had a scroll through all the research projects that they had and nothing really popped out except for this one that was looking at medicinal plants. And because I'd been talking to an ethnobotanist who lives in far north Queensland um, who's been dealing with medicinal plants in, with Indigenous knowledge in Australia, I kind of thought, well, maybe if I go to Israel, I can learn more about the ethnobotanical side of the Bedouin people, which is part of the research there. So the Bedouins are a, a nomadic tribe of like an Arab community. They haven't really integrated into the Western medical system, so they're still very much reliant on um, medicinal plants. Where are we, whereabouts are we talking about here? So I believe this is the Dead Sea and Arava Science Centre. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. That is perfect, well, except where I would is say it? Arava. Okay. It's kind of like the emphasis is different, but very similar. Arava. Yes, bonus points. We're talking about the central Arava region. So there's the central and there's the southern Arava region. So this is a little slice of heaven. It's a little slice of desert um, on the eastern border of Israel, bordering with Jordan. And it's kind of, it's the region below the Dead Sea all the way to Elat, which is kind of like Israel's um, Las Vegas. So that's kind of where we are. And it's um, predominantly a farming community. So it's kind of strange. Like you think desert community, farming community, doesn't really go together. But that's kind of what it's famous for. It's famous for um, a region that they've really made the desert bloom through really high technology, um, which Israel is, is really known for. Okay. And there are many projects, I believe, at this science centre, but you worked with uh, Dr. Rivki Ophir. Yes. Uh, now, you spoke a little bit about what this is about with the medicinal plants. Can you tell us, give us an idea of what her, what her project is trying to do? So she's been working with medicinal plants for 30 years or so, and her premise is uh, she's dealing with a really, really arid terrain, so there's not much water, there's not much kind of resources, um, minerals and things like that, which are really um, congruent with life. So um, her premise is if anything is growing in this arid terrain, there might be something physiologically different in these plants um, in terms of their evolved biochemistry um, that might actually be re really useful and might have bioactivity in a whole range of different things such as, let's say, cancer, anti-cancer activity or antifungal or antibacterial activity. Okay, so they're, like, they're really tough organisms, so they have to be tough to survive. And so how are they doing it? Is that the question? Yeah, so her, her premise was the, these plants do grow in other areas um, some are endemic to the region, some are not endemic, but they um, physiologically look different to the ones that are not in this region. And so they're trying to really see whether or not um, these species that grow in the arid terrain are, f uh, from a biochemical perspective, different. Okay, cool. Yeah. So what was, your, what was your role? What was your job here? I was pretty much just a medical research student with her. And so um, 
She, she's got a library of 250 um, plants that she's collected, not herself, but everyone together. But what I essentially did is we wanted to get fresh, fresh plants, go out with a herbalist, that's a local herbalist, both to identify the plants and um, make very high quality liquid extracts. So rather than a dry form, using liquid forms and then test them on a whole range of different things. Excellent. You're listening to Lost in Science on the Community Radio Network and we are talking to science communicator Jess Sneer about medicinal properties of desert plants. Okay, so um, you went out and collected to the desert and you collected some of these plants, yes. is that right? Four-wheel drives. Four-wheel drives. Yes. So what, what was it like out there in the, the harsh elements? The was it harsh? Oh, it was very harsh. I mean, you guys can't see me, but like... You pretty much couldn't get anyone paler and more prone to any type of skin condition. But um, I found it, it's, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. It's, it's absolutely empty. It's very, very low density of people that live there. It's white sandy dunes, probably the, the nicest sunrises and the sunsets that you'll see. But in terms of vegetation, it's very, very limited. Besides for the little shrubs that, that I was dealing with, which was about five different shrubs. The only tree that's there is the acacia tree, which for them, a lot of their research is on this one tree that's, that's around the area. Um, yeah, but it is, it is really, really beautiful. Okay. Yeah. And what are the plants that you worked on then? So what, are there anything that we would have heard of? Like what are the main ones that you... Sure. The interesting thing for me is, so I actually speak Hebrew and I um, communicated with the researchers there in Hebrew the whole time. So I... I'm aware of the English names, but I'm more aware of the Hebrew names. Um, but the main one that I focused on was in Hebrew called Sharvitan. In English, it's an ephedra plant. So um, the genus is ephedra and the species name is ephila. So ephedraphila. Um, it's quite a funny looking plant. You kind of, you, you can spot it from a mile away. It kind of just looks like this big fibrous, kind of like a tumbleweed that's stationary. And um, it flowers once a year kind of looks like a Christmas tree. It's dotted with little red berries, which I wouldn't um, wouldn't say to eat because I haven't done the research to that degree. Um, Surely someone has, though. Oh, people in that, that region don't, you know, they eat anything. They're survivors. Okay. <laughs> but, yes, that was the main one. Another one was Pulicaria, uh, which has a really beautiful fa- fragrance. And there's also, we also dealt with a lot of, Biblical plants, because, um, of course, this region um, in Israel is uh, mentioned in the Bible quite a few times. So uh, like frankincense and myrrh, those I, I mainly concentrate on myrrh rather than frankincense. whole different range of species of the myrrh. Um, the main one is from India, but we focused on the one that's endemic to this region. Um, and that came back with actually quite high antibacterial properties, um, but, but not so much on the cancer on the cancer side. But, yeah, so very, very varied plants. Okay. Stu, you're our resident botanist. Have you heard of some of these plants? I've heard of probably all of those plants. I'd I'd be surprised if people would eat the ephedra berries because uh, the the same genus is where we get ephedrine. Yes. Which is a stimulant akin to amphetamines. So if you ate the berries, you might get lots of energy and start running around the desert like a crazy person. We do not condone the eating of these no. berries. No. Well, I, I, I'd be pretty sure you wouldn't be allowed to import the plant or the berries mm. into Australia. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that, though, what you said about um, ephedra and the ephedrine, I guess that demonstrates how these 
these herbs, these plants do have these uh, these chemicals in them that they, that are useful for medicine or have some yeah. sort of effect on the human body. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of medicines came from plants, and a lot of yep. what we use as medicine are synthetics of chemicals that were found in plants. Mm. But um, the ephedra is an interesting one because the ephedra is part of a class of plants which predate uh, most of the flowering plants. Mm. So they're really, really ancient kind mm. of plant, and they might have been out in the desert yeah. since way before all of the other plants even appeared on Earth because mm. they're all, the, the other ones are mostly flowering plants, but that ephedra must be way more ancient than the desert possibly even. Can I ask a question, Jess? You said you're working with Bedouin community? So I, I was only there for four months, so I didn't actually get to um, experience that Whereas Dr. Rifki Ophir has been working with the Bedouin communities one on one in a whole range of different things, looking at um, the difference in their in genetics in terms of their predisposition to certain diseases, as well as their traditional knowledge in botany. Yeah. So did they did they get asked, you know, what plants you use when you get sick, and then yeah. you're trying to figure out is there anything in the plant that will help them? Yeah. Pharmacologically. Yeah. And, you know, maybe, you know, I know a lot of herbalism's probably, it makes you feel better, so you mm. get better anyway, but, uh, you know, yeah. you're actually looking for serious effects. And yeah. yeah. Well, we're trying to actually, like, whittle down from a lot of anecdotal evidence of well-being, of feeling good, which is very far removed. That's a qualitative kind of measure. We're trying to whittle that down to a quantitative measure of exactly which bioactive ingredient is in this, if there is one, um, so we can actually quantify it. But in terms of what you said about asking them, that's kind of the broader picture, whereas I was much more involved in the, in the latter stage of that. So this is what you did, is you, look, you search for the bioactive ingredients in, these, in plants like ephedra, and like, how did you do that and what did you find? Okay, so what we really did is I went out with this herbalist who we went out, we found the plant, took a photo, we put a little rock next to it so we could find it next time. Fun fact, always do that. Always bring rocks with you when you're looking for certain plants. And um, then what we did is we took it and it's kind of like doing a sage ceremony. We kind of hung it upside down um, and sat there on a chair and waited for two weeks. And um, after that, we collected it and you grind it up with a commercial blender. And once you've got a fine powder, we sieved it. We wanted to extract from this powder different chemicals of different compositions and sizes because at the moment we actually have no idea, you know, what size of chemical we're really looking for. So we used, let's say, a solvent that's an ethanol-based or an ethopetroleum. After we did that, we essentially, let again, sat on a chair, let it soak, and then we had this really cool contraption that the herbalist had made, which is essentially um, compressing it. We actually got a 20-ton compression, and then we extracted from that the liquid. So it's kind of like an essential oil that we, that we got at the end. So very, very high quality, um, high purity. But instead of um, using that to smell nice for incense, we, we then added that to, to either our culture of E. coli, bacteria, different um, fungi or um, the lymphoma cancer cell line, which, which I worked on. Okay. And yeah. did you get some effects from those, on those uh, cultures? 
I will be honest. I was there for four months, which if anyone is out there as a researcher, you know that's pretty much a blink of the eye. Um, but that's just to, to cover my behind and the lack of work that I got done. Um, no, so I did. I at first focused on the agricultural side of the research. So we're really trying to help the community there. So we focused on trying to see if there's any natural herbicides or fungicides in this library of plants. So we focused on um, uh, Rhizoctonia, Fusarium and Pythium, which are three of the most common fungi that, that grow and, and are detrimental to the crops. So mainly um, the pepper crops, they call it bell peppers, we call it capsicums. They found that very confusing, so I just conformed. Yeah, and so that a few of them did show effects with that. Um, after that, we focused more on the medicinal side, so on the lymphoma cancer cells, and um, which was a mouse cell line. The one that really I ended up deciding to focus on because of lack of time was the ephedra, a filler that I, that I spoke about earlier. And it essentially just showed that um, if we added the, the ephedra to the cancer cell line, um, it showed a process called DNA fragmentation, which, which is very indicative of apoptosis process. Um, yeah, so that was quite, quite an exciting, very preliminary result. Okay, that is fantastic that you're getting some sort of, um, I guess, yeah, you're finding these activity of these, these plants that have been used in traditional ways. So you combine that kind of traditional knowledge with um, botany and yeah. desert science and everything like that. Mm. Yeah, definitely. The other thing was the, with the ephedra, um, in the region, they have actually been going out, cutting it and making tinctures of it on their own accord. So both um, the Israeli communities and the Bedouin people have been drinking it um, without any kind of regulation or anything like that for cancer. So there's a lot of anecdotal evidence going on there, um, which maybe, you know, it may have detrimental effects. So it's also just important to to focus in on whether that's actually valid from a scientific perspective. Great. Well, it is, and it's good to see such good science coming out of the desert. And as you said at the beginning, perhaps some hope for uh, research in Australia as yes. well. Yes. Uh, well, thank you very much for coming in, Jess, and telling us all about this, uh, this fascinating research. Uh, that was science communicator Jess Sneer and the medicinal tales of desert plants. So we are well and truly into autumn now. Uh, the, mm, nights, sure are. the nights are officially longer than the days, well, at least in the non-tropical parts of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the south of Australia, the temperatures are dropping, although not all that quickly. It's sort of all over the place at the moment. Um, but leaves will also be dropping off deciduous trees quite soon, if they haven't already. Uh, and those trees will enter a period of dormancy to ride out the coldest part of the year in those temperate areas. So the trees that lose their leaves in winter are mostly from much colder climates than Australia. Um, and they've often evolved to deal with icy cold weather and snow, which we rarely get in Australia. And in fact, most Australian native plants are not deciduous. They're mostly evergreen plants. Are there some that are deciduous though? There's a couple that are deciduous, but most of them are deciduous when it gets too hot. Oh, really? Yeah, they drop their leaves when it gets too hot. Oh, that's rather interesting. Than, rather than when it gets too cold. Um, so 
Plant tissue like leaves and flowers are damaged by freezing temperatures, obviously, uh, and the trees drop them all and pretty much shut up shop during the winter. Um, They're still alive, obviously, and still transpiring and metabolising, but at a much, much slower rate than when they're actively growing in the spring and the summer, uh, and even the autumn. Um, And in some species, uh, root growth continues over the winter. So actually, their roots continue to grow, using up stored energy from inside the plant. But some of the most important food trees are deciduous plants, uh, including pome fruits, so a poem is a kind of fruit. Like, <laughs> is, is that is that one of the most important fruits in the world? Apples, the poem? Apples. Oh, the apples. Are a poem. Right. I you and pears are I'm a poem. Like, poem? What is poem? What is a poem? What is a poem? Okay, so, okay. All yeah, right. poem fruits and stone okay. fruits like right. cherries, peaches, plums, and also nut trees like when, almonds. When you use your non-horticulturalist terms, I can understand you. Can I, can I like, oh, I should raise my hand and make a signal that it's a horticultural term. No good yes. for people listening at home. <laughs> so one important part of growing these kinds of fruit and nut trees is that they actually need cold winters. Oh. Uh, which is why they're not often grown in the subtropics and the tropics. They just don't grow very well in the tropics. Um, so these fruit trees, the deciduous fruit trees, have a requirement that the temperature drops below a certain point for a specific amount of time before they start growing again. This is the adaptation that prevents them from growing leaves or flowering if there's a couple of warm days in the middle of winter. So if if the weather warms up and the tree just suddenly went, oh, it's spring and put all its leaves and flowers out, then the weather gets cold again and they lose all of that uh, that tissue that they've created. Yeah, and obviously spent all that energy. Yeah, that loses a whole bunch of energy. Um, so each one of them has a specific chill factor. <laughs> after which the tree can safely flower and grow leaves with much greater success because there's more favourable growing conditions. So basically, it's the tree keeping time until it's gone through enough winter, enough hours of cold that it that it is safe that the winter's over and it can start growing again. So if they don't get enough, if they don't get the right amount of chilling time, they either produce leaves and flowers late or sometimes not at all, uh, which is obviously a big problem if you're a fruit or nut grower. Um, so this is why commercial orchards of these fruits are mostly found in temperate areas, not just because people in the tropics can grow bananas and mangoes uh, instead of apples and plums. It's because these trees won't grow up further north, um, so they grow different things. So scientists at Utah State University in the US came up with a way as, of classifying this cold requirement in terms of chill units. So trees have different the numbers. The coolest type of unit around. Yeah, yeah, they're pretty chill. Yeah. Yeah, chill units. Yeah. <laughs> so they have different numbers of chill units to produce good fruit. Um, but it is, it's a lot more complicated than it first seems. So the exact temperature is also important. So an hour below 1.4 degrees Celsius is zero chill units. It's too cold. Uh, an hour between 1.5 and 2.4 degrees Celsius is half a chill unit. And an hour between 2.5 and 9 degrees Celsius is one chill unit. Now, this is only one way of doing this calculation. There's a whole bunch of different methods that people use to come up with this stuff. But this one's pretty widely used and it, and it 
seems to work. But what they did find is that the more specific they got, the more accurate their predictions were. So if they narrowed the uh, temperature ranges they were measuring, they got even more accurate oh, predictions right. of the chill units. So it could so get it's even. A, it's it's a sliding it's scale. A sliding scale, yeah. Can you give me an example of um, a chill unit, like a, a, as in a how much a tree, tree? needs? Yeah, so, oh, it can. It varies hugely, and I'll um I'll explain some okay. of the some of the variations that they right. go through. That one of the interesting things is if the temperature gets too high, the units become negative. Okay. So an hour above 18 degrees Celsius during the winter period is negative one chill unit. So you actually lose one of the chill units because it gets too warm. Um, and this is usually only early in the season. So as the trees are becoming <laughs> dormant, right? Okay. if it gets warm, they sort of get set back to zero again and they okay. have to start all over again. Um, so it's a cumulative thing. It's a cumulative thing and, and – yeah, the, the higher temperatures can actually reverse it somewhat. Um, but they have to get the total to the right number before the plant will start growing again. And the numbers vary a lot, as I said. So there are some plums, for example, the Santa Rosa plum, which is from a relatively warm climate, uh, needs 150 chill units in a year, you know, in the winter. And then in the spring, if it gets 150 chill units, it'll start growing again. And if you look around, some of the earliest flowering trees in the early spring are plum trees. And also those, you know, you see those, uh, the, the blossom trees that they plant as street trees in a lot of places. They have those plum blossoms. They don't get edible fruit, but they have the plum blossoms. They're related to the plums, so they actually have a very low chill requirement. So that's why they bloom early. They start producing flowers early. Right, um, yeah. And yeah. then... So some varieties of peaches need up to 900 chill units. Wow, so they're probably late bloomers. Yeah, they? late bloomers, or they only grow well in really cold, cold places. And some of the apples are well over 1,000, and some are up to 1,500 chill <laughs> units. Wow. So, which is why, you know, if you look, they call Tasmania the Apple Isle. It was perfect for growing all of these mm. old varieties of apples, which needed a huge amount of chill to yeah. actually get decent apples. A lot of the supermarket varieties like like uh, Gala and Fuji that we tend to be commonly available in supermarkets have a very low chill requirement. They've been bred specifically to be grown in warmer climates so we can have them growing in place in Victoria, which the older varieties of apple couldn't grow. So people are actually doing work on this stuff to try and find things, you know, different varieties that have less, less of a chill requirement so they can grow them in warmer places. I guess that could be a bit of a worry in the future. And as long as people are breeding for these things that, you know, while a lot of people complain about the cold in the winter, uh, it's a necessary part of having delicious fruit in the summer, like cherries and nectarines, uh, if it didn't get cold enough for long enough, those fruits would not be available or they'd just get really, really expensive because they'd have to travel further. It's a bit of a worry to think that a couple of degrees difference in the annual, you know, uh, low temperatures could actually have a huge impact on the diet that we've all come to accept as, oh, this is just what we eat. So, you know, if we didn't have winter, we wouldn't have all those delicious summer fruits.
And that's all we have time for for another episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for listening and a big thank you to our guest today, Jess Sneer. Lost in Science is recorded in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the generous support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Please get in touch with us. We love an email. You can find us at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at lostinscience1 or find us on the dreaded Facebook. We are still there. Or maybe you can just uh, wait until next week where Claire, Stu and Chris will get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.